right. Well, it's good to be with you all this morning. Uh, you know, this is our home church and probably don't know half of the people here because we're never here. It's like it's a rarity that we actually get to be here and join you all. But uh, when Troy asked me a couple weeks ago, it's like, well, I don't really have time right now, but I can't turn him down again. He'd already asked me once and I couldn't preach for him. It's like... I'm going to take the opportunity. And so this morning we're going to be looking. I've, t- I've titled this message, History Beginning to End. And when Dolores heard that, she began to panic and thought, we're going to be here all day. He's going to try to cover the whole thing. But we are going to be in Genesis and we are going to be in Revelation, but we're not going to cover everything in between. So I want to start out by giving you a quiz. I know you didn't necessarily come to church thinking I'm going to be, you're going to get tested this morning, but I'm going to read the first line of a book, and you need to tell me what book that's from. And so these are all famous books, so most of I think you'll get it. Scarlett O'Hara was beautiful, but men seldom realized it when caught by her charm. Gone with the wind. Pretty simple, right? Okay. All children except one grow up. Peter Pan. Very good. All right. I'm struggling here. I've reached the age I can't see anything without these. All right. You don't know about me without you have read a book by the name of The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, but that ain't no matter. Huck Finn, yes. All right. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. The hobbit, yeah. Pretty pretty, pretty self-explanatory there. Once there were four children whose names were Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. Okay, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the first book of the Chronicles of Narnia, yes. All right, and then the last one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis, very good. So, yeah, the, you know, we all know that, it, yeah, it is the first book of the Bible, but there are 66 books in the Bible, so it's the first of Genesis. And that's what we're going to begin with this morning. We're going to begin, we're going to look at Genesis 1-1. And as it said simply, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I believe this is the most important verse in the whole Bible. What you believe about this verse determines everything else you believe about the Bible. If you can't accept this verse, you can't accept the rest of the Bible. It is the foundational and fundamental verse that everything else is built upon. Because as we begin to look at this, and and we're going to break apart and just do a little bit of it because we're going to cover a whole lot more, but in the beginning, God. The reason I chose those other books is because the first line tells you something significant about the main character or who the main character is in each of those books. It's the same thing in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. See, God is the central character of the entire Bible. And sometimes I think we forget that. God is the center of absolutely everything. We often have a tendency to think we are. We often have a tendency to read the stories of the Bible and think something great. David and Goliath. You know what? That story is not about David. That story is about God. See, it wasn't David who slew the giant. It was God who slew the giant. 
Every single story in the Bible, everything in the Bible is to tell us what we need to know about God so that we can understand and learn and know who God is. That's why he's given us the Bible. He is the central character from beginning to end of the scriptures. Now, there's a lot of great stories and a lot of great men, but it was their faith in God that made them great. God is the central character who did all the work. God is the one who shows up and does everything. So the Bible is all about God. We live in a heliocentric solar system, meaning the sun is at the center of it, right? But for centuries, mankind believed that the earth and that we were the center and everything revolved around us. It wasn't until they began and, re- and began to understand and realize, no, the sun is the center of our solar system and the earth revolves around it, that mathematics and all kinds of other things began to fall into place and we began to understand and knowledge began to grow. Do you know, there are still people who believe the other way around. I was on a mission trip just two years ago. Well, that's two years ago now because we didn't go anywhere last year. But a couple of years ago, I was on a mission trip. I met a man who believed that the earth is flat. He's still a flat earther, believed it strongly. The interesting part is he used to work in an airport. And it's like, how can you work in an airport and understand how planes go and still think the earth is flat? Now, he believed in God. I'm glad he got that part right. He was a strong believer in God. He was just wrong on this point over here. But, and if he had to be wrong on one and right on the other, I'm glad he was the way he was. But see, until we get the things right and we begin to understand who is at the center of things, we will never have everything else right. So until we place God at the center of our lives, until we understand that he is the center of everything, we will never get anything else right. We will always be struggling and striving for something more because we don't have the right thing at the center. Because we are egocentric, let's face it. You know, we live in a heliocentric solar system, but we are very egocentric people. We think everything revolves around us. When something happens, what's the first question? Well, how does that affect me? How does that make me feel? Is that not the way our entire world responds to everything? You know, it's like, well, how does that make me feel? You know, I I need a cry room now after that. You know, why? Because we've got the wrong person at the center. We have to put God at the center of everything. When we begin to have a theocentric life, then things begin to make sense. Things begin to work when we put God at the center. Another first line that's famous of a book, um, Purpose Driven Life, regardless of how, what you think about the book or anything, the one thing he did get right was the very first line of that book. In the very first line of the book, he says, it's not about you. So go ahead and just accept it. It's not about you. It's about God. Everything. Our life and everything is about God. He is the center. And so Genesis 1-1 sets that out from the very beginning. In the beginning, God. It's about him. This is all about him and what he is doing and what he, his plans for our world. Now, we move on and we look a little bit further. In the beginning, God created We serve a creator, God. He created everything that exists. There's nothing that exists that he didn't create. In fact, the word used there in the Hebrew is bara, and it's only used of God. Everywhere else, there's a different word used for creating, and it's because mankind, when we create something, we create 
by taking something that already exists and reforming and refashioning it to make something else. When God created, he created ex nihilo, out of nothing. He just spoke. There was nothing there, and he spoke, and it came into being. God created out of nothing. And because he created everything that we see, that means he, he's in control, right? You know, I grew up with a brother who, you know, we, he liked to make up games. And because he was making up the game, guess what happened as we went along in the game? The rules changed. It's his game. And so the rules needed, if they needed to change for his favor, guess what? They changed for his favor, right? Why? Because he created it. It's his game. He gets to do what he wants. And the rules changed to suit him. Folks, God created the world and everything in it. In fact, he still holds it in the palm of his hand. We're going to see that a little bit later. But God created it all. He is in control. And because he created it, that has incredible significance. Because God created, that means God has authority over everything. God is the authority over everything in the world, and that includes you and me. He is the authority over our lives. Whether we want him to be or not, he is the authority. And when we look at our world, they obviously clear, they don't want God to be an authority, right? And we're, we're going to look at that just a little bit more here. But God created it, therefore we are accountable to him. Whether we like it or not, we are accountable to him. In fact, um, got to give credit. Nietzsche, you know, a famous atheist, he put it this way. We deny God. In denying God, we deny accountability. You know, got to give him credit for at least being honest. Why is he denying God? He's denying him because he wants to deny accountability to God. He doesn't want to have to admit there is a God who has authority over me. It's more pleasing to me in my egocentric life to think, no, there's no God. I'm in control. It's all about me. But no, God is in control and he has the authority over us. He created it all. In fact, Romans 1, 18 to 20. Let me flip over there and just read it. Romans 1, 18 to 20 says, oh, that's Acts. Helps get the right book, doesn't it? All right. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world... His invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. God has made himself known in his creation. We are without excuse for not recognizing that there is a creator God. There is a God who has authority over us, and he has made it known through his creation. How many like to go to the mountains? I love the mountains. You know, I, I make the terrible tourist because I never really like looking at the things that we're supposed to be looking at as a tourist. I like to look at creation. What has what God created? What is, what is the terrain? What is the everything like? 
And because of where God has sent us and how he's used us, I've, we've been blessed. I've seen a lot of different mountain ranges in my lifetime. And every one of them shows the majesty and the glory of God. And they're, and they're so different. I mean, I've, I've seen Mount Everest from a plane, but we were flying above the clouds and Mount Everest was sticking up above the clouds because of its height. And the pilot says, look out this window and you can see Mount Everest. I've seen the Annapurna Mountains and the Alps. And now all of these are I've been on mission trips, just in a little encouragement. Mission trips give you an opportunity to see God's world. You know, I, I love we have partnerships where we go up to Canada. Well, our partnership is in the Alberta Providence where the northern Rockies are absolutely beautiful up there. And Banff National Park. And just time after time, there's one glorious mountain after another to declare God's glory. And they're all different. But at the same time, how, how many like to go to the sea and go to the ocean? I love I loved the ocean. That's my favorite place to go for a vacation. And, and it's beautiful. The power of the ocean shows God's power in creation. And just the power of those waves. But you know what? I like the scuba dive too. And you know what? When you go down underneath the water, there's another whole world down there. That is just absolutely amazing and incredible and beautiful. God has created just as much amazing stuff under the ocean as he has above the ocean. And all of it declares his glory. All of it says, I am God and I have made this. And we need to recognize that. And so the mountains declare his glory. The seas declare his glory. But you know what? When we look up and see the stars... Have you ever been to a park or a place where when it's so dark, when you look up, you can just see the heavens and all the stars? I mean, that, that's one thing I still want to do is I want to go to a dark sky park someday and just see all of the glory of the heavens. I still remember being in the mountains in northern Afghanistan where there was no electricity, so it was dark. And looking up and just the sky was just absolutely filled with stars. Just so amazing and beautiful. All of that declares God's glory. Romans tells us that we are without excuse. We are without excuse. God has made it evident to us of his power, his glory, his majesty in his creation. But Psalm 2 tells us about mankind. In, in Genesis, you know, J chapters 1 and 2 is the creation story. By chapter 3, we discover mankind messes it up, right? And we mess up and everything gets messed up from there. Now sin's in the world. we got problems. Psalms 2 tells us a little bit about where we are as mankind. Psalms 2 starts out and says, Why are the nations in an uproar? And the people's devising a vain thing, the kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear down their fetters tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord, he said to me. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. The nations, the world is in an uproar. Denying God as authority. 
seeking to tear down his authority over their lives. And do we not see that in our world today? I mean, you just can't even turn the news on anymore without seeing just evidence after evidence of mankind's fallen nature and their desire to cast off God's authority over their lives. See, mankind wants to throw off God's authority. And that's really, that, that is why there is such a strong push for evolution and redefining marriage and redefining gender and all of these things is because mankind is trying to throw God's authority, throw his word off and place themselves at the center. And what did, what did Psalms tell us? Psalms said God just sits in heavens and laughs. He's not the least bit concerned that they're going to overthrow him, that they're somehow going to change the truth of his word, that they're somehow going to change his world. Why? Because he's in control. He is sovereign and he is God. We are like those little two-year-olds that run up to you throwing a temper tantrum and hitting you. And you just kind of look down. Do you really think you're going to knock me over? No. We're that way with God. The world can rage all at once. We will not overthrow God. He is in control. In fact, Stephen Hawking's another atheist. He wrote in one of his best-selling books, The Grand Design. He wrote, The universe can and will create itself from nothing. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing. Why the universe exists. Why we exist. Now, I've he actually believes that, and he, he thinks it just kind of created itself. So there's nothing here. Let's stand here until something creates itself. Who wants to join me and wait? You know, we're going to be waiting a long time if we're waiting something to just instantaneously create itself, right? Because that doesn't happen. And the ironic thing, what was the title of that book? The Grand Design. That's right. There is a grand design, and there's a grand designer. God created everything with a grand design. Bertrand Russell put it this way, unless you assume a God, the question of life's purpose is meaningless. As long as you take God out of the equation, and he was an atheist who took God out of the equation, but he admitted as long as you're taking God out of the equation, then life is meaningless. You can search all you want. And we have a world that is searching and searching for something that will satisfy and please them. And unless they seek God, they're never going to find it. The only way they're ever going to find satisfaction is in God. Because he is their creator. Now fortunately, God didn't leave us in this state. He didn't leave us in our sinful state. Just two weeks ago, we celebrated Easter, right? Two weeks ago, we celebrated. God, God took action and he made a way for us to be reconnected to him. He sent his son, Jesus Christ. You know, I, I'm going out on a limb here, but I'm betting Troy probably preached something about this two weeks ago. You know, I'm probably on a limb here, but I bet he preached something about Jesus Christ coming, dying on the cross, being buried and resurrected three days later. God has a plan to restore us if we will just choose to make him Lord of our lives. If we will choose to follow him. And so some 2,000 years ago at this time, the apostles are sitting in a room pondering, what, what do we do? What do we do? Jesus has died, you know, three days. He, he rose three days later. We, we've seen him. 
What's the one command? What's the one thing in this time frame between Easter and Pentecost that all of the scriptures record? Anybody know? There's one thing, there's only one thing that's in all of the gospel accounts and in Acts. And that's the Great Commission. After Jesus rose, his final commands, his final words to the church were go and tell every creature, every nation, every people. I heard, I heard it put this week at a, at a meeting I was at. As this was being talked about. And he's like, you know, we, we place strong significance on a person's dying words. You know, their, their dying words are what they really believe, what they really want. How much more? Jesus' final words to us. He said it was like putting 17 exclamation points after it. Go and tell the nations. That is our overarching mission as the church. I mean, there's a lot of things the church is supposed to do, but there's one overarching mission. We are to go and tell the world the good news of Jesus Christ. We are to go and tell them that Jesus has made a way, that he has brought good news to take us out of our bondage to sin. Now I want to flip over to Revelations. There's a lot more actually in that verse 1. And if I was doing a whole sermon on verse 1, we would, continue, we would hit some of those other parts. And we'll, we'll come back to it in a minute. But, well, we'll just hit. In the beginning. In the beginning. The, the beginning there. The word that's used for beginning there is the word that is generally used to mean the beginning of a certain time period. Like the harvest time. There's a beginning of the harvest and there's an end of the harvest. There's a, there's a season. And because there's a beginning, there's an end. There's a beginning and there's an end. And there's going to be an end someday. And we're going to jump over to Revelation now. And we're going to look a little bit at that end. God created the world and there's a beginning. There's going to be an end. And someday there's going to be a new beginning of a new heavens and a new earth. But let's flip over to Revelations, Revelation chapter 5. We're actually going to start in 4.11, and then we're going to just go through 5.10. I'm just going to read the whole passage, then we'll come back and just look at it a little bit. Starting in 4.11, it says, Worthy are you, O Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. 
And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. See, there's, there's going to be an end to this story. And Revelation begins to tell us just a little bit about it. And I understand Troy's going through Revelation on Wednesday night, so I'm going to let him go into all that hard detail stuff. We're just going to hit the highlights here. But verse 11, it takes us right back to Genesis 1, does it not? What we've just been talking about in Genesis 1, 4.11 takes us right back there. Worthy are you, O Lord, and our God, to receive glory and honor and power He is the one who's worthy, just as we've been saying. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. So here in Genesis, here at the end, God is reminding us all the way back to the beginning. It all started with God. In fact, Colossians 1, uh, verses 16 and 17, I believe it is, tell us the same thing. It was all created according to his will. It is all fit together and held together. Through Christ. He is the one that holds it all together. God is in charge. He is the creator. And then we move on in verse 1. I saw in the right hand of him. God holds the destiny. God holds the entire world in the palm of his hand. I mean, he's hold, in this case, he's holding a book. But he, he holds the destiny of our entire world in the palm of his hand. He is in complete control. He is sovereign and in control of everything. And as much as we might want to control things around us, we're not in control. God is in control. And so he holds it all and he controls it all. God has it all in the palm of his hand. Then in verse 2, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book? And to break its seals. Who is worthy? In fact, verse 3, they couldn't find anybody, right? Because none of us, no one, apart from Christ, we're, we're not worthy of anything. Now that's probably not the way most of the time we see ourselves, is it? It's all about perspective. We see ourselves and it's like, you know what? I'm a pretty good person who messes up occasionally. You know, I, this, I heard this priest in a different sermon on a totally different concept last week even. And the, and the pastor put it this way. You know what? We see ourselves as good and we occasionally mess up. But I'm, I'm generally a good person who occasionally messes up. Now turn that around and look at it from God's perspective. God looks at us and sees there's a completely depraved and worthless person who occasionally gets it right. Is God's perspective probably not closer to true? Apart from him, we are completely depraved and worthless people. If there's any goodness in us, it's because of him. It's because we have placed our faith in him and received him as Lord of our lives. Apart from him, we are completely depraved people. And so therefore, when we look at it in perspective, then we are not worthy. No one was worthy. But fortunately, there is one who's worthy, isn't there? There is someone who is worthy and who was worthy and is Jesus Christ. Because of the work he did and what we celebrated two weeks ago at Easter, the work that he did, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb of God, 
It was through his shed blood. He is worthy to open it. And I think it's down in verse 5. Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. It was through his shed blood. He is worthy. He is the only one who is worthy. And what what did he do with his shed blood? Worthy are you, in verse 9, to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. The Great Commission is a global commission. The Great Commission means we are to take the gospel to everyone, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, everybody because his death on the cross purchased for god people from every single tribe in the world from every language group from everyone in the world that is why the great commission that is why we are called and that is the overarching mission of the church as a whole we are to be on mission for god taking this good news to the whole world now that whole world starts right here acts 1 8 it starts right here in our jerusalem but it can't stop there we have to we have to be witnesses right here at home in our communities in our churches to our neighbors but we can't stop there we have to take it all the way around the world so that all may know some two thousand years you know right now there's a population of about 7.9 billion people in the world almost 8 billion people in our world Do you know how many are still considered unreached? Almost 42%. And that doesn't mean they just haven't accepted God. That means they don't even have access to the gospel to know about God. Folks, some 2,000 years later, we still have a huge task in front of us. 40% of the world still doesn't even have the gospel. They haven't heard about Jesus Christ. And yet that, that's our mission is the church. Our mission is to take it to them. So what are we going to do about it? You know, it, it's, it's the mission for all of us. We're all called to take the good news. So what are you going to do as an individual? What am I going to do as an individual? What are we going to do as a church? What are we going to do collectively as as an association of churches and associations of churches? Well, I happen to have something. It's in your bulletin. We have an Acts 1-8 mission conference coming up next Saturday. And I want to challenge and encourage you to come and see and hear what God is doing. We voted as an association at our annual meeting last year to make this Filipino partnership, an official partnership of of our association and our churches. And if I get started on talking about this, we'll be here all afternoon because it takes me about 30 minutes just to tell you why Filipinos, just to tell you what God is is doing and how he has shown us how he has shown up time and again as to why 
we have chosen Filipinos and why he wants us to partner with Filipinos and to take the gospel. And so we are, we are forming an Acts 1-8 mission partnership where we will be doing working with Filipinos right here in southeast Missouri, in our Jerusalem, in our Judea, in our Samaria, and to the uttermost all the way back into the Philippines. And there's so much to it. I, I want to encourage you to sign up and come next Saturday and hear and see what God is doing. That is one way we are responding. Now, I know this church is, does missions, and I know you have a partnership in Bangladesh. And I'm not, you know, I don't want to encourage any church to give up one thing to do something else. I want to encourage you to keep going, keep doing. But if God is calling you to be a part of something like this, because there are opportunities for absolutely everyone to be involved in this partnership from high school all the way up. I'm not sure we got the nursery yet and got anything figured out for the nursery yet, but you know, give us time. We might find something. But there are ways for high school students to be involved during the summer in missions, our college students, and all the way up. Nobody is too old to be involved because the one thing that we are launching this with is prayer. We are launching this entire prayer partnership in prayer. And part of the partnership is for every person who goes, we want somebody back here that is the prayer partner praying for them. And because we are partnering as nine associations in southeast Missouri, I am hopeful that we have hundreds of people going every year somewhere. Whether it's just somewhere here in the United States or somewhere in the Philippines or somewhere in Canada or wherever it might be. But for everyone who goes, we need a prayer partner that is back here praying for them and letting them know. So we, we have an entire breakout session at it on how to be a prayer team partner. And so anybody can be involved. Even if you can't say, I, oh, I can't fly anymore. I can't get on a plane. That's all right. There's still a vital role for absolutely everybody in this partnership. And this partnership is about taking the gospel to the nations being in fulfillment of the Great Commission and what God has asked us to do. Why? Because we're accountable to Him. He is the authority over our lives. And if this is His final command, it's got those exclamation points behind it, should we not be taking that seriously and staying involved in the Great Commission? That's how I want to close this morning's sermon. I want to close with a challenge. To each and every one of us, how are you involved in the Great Commission? And it might be locally. And that's great and wonderful because the Great Commission is not just global. It starts right here at home. But how are you involved in the Great Commission? How are you involved in taking the gospel to the nations? The first step is you have to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You know, just as we talked about there two weeks ago on Easter, we celebrated what Christ did for us. Our worthless, sinful, depraved nature. He made a way that we can have our sins forgiven. That we can be restored to him and make him Lord of our lives. That's the first step for anybody. Is to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord. If you haven't done that, I encourage you to do that this morning. But I'm guessing the most of us in the chairs here this morning have already done that. We've made him Lord of our lives.
Have we really made him Lord? Are we following the commands that he's given us to do? So in response this morning, what is God calling you to do? Maybe he's calling you just to come and check it out and hear and see. Maybe he's already given you a task and he, he wants you to be involved in that. But this morning in the response to God's word. Ask him, God, what would you have me to do? We're never too old to serve. When I was on the mission field, we served with a couple in their 80s. They kept coming back and kept coming back. Maybe you can't go, but you can pray. How would God have you to serve? So as the musicians come and we have a time of invitation, that's the response to God's word this morning. God, how would you have me to serve?